If it's Tuesday, crisis and controversy at the border as President Biden weighs the return of a family detention policy that's been criticized as inhumane by some immigration advocates and members of Congress. Plus, two Americans are dead after a case of mistaken identity leads to a kidnapping by the cartel in a dangerous part of Mexico. And it all happened just across the border from Brownsville, Texas. And the battle over reproductive rights ramps up in Texas as a group of women is filing suit, alleging the state's abortion restrictions put their lives in danger. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker. We begin today with multiple developments surrounding the issues of immigration and the border as the Biden administration weighs changes to its embattled border policies amid shocking violence against Americans in Mexico. Two Americans were murdered and two more have just been returned to the U.S. after being kidnapped after they crossed the border in northern Mexico last week. We're going to have more on that in just a minute. But the politics of the border were already front and center today after The New York Times first reported. And NBC News now confirms the Biden administration is considering restarting the controversial policy of detaining families with children after they cross the border illegally. White House Press Secretary Karine I'm just not. Com- I'm just not going to comment on rumors that are out there. I'm not- I'm not saying it's being considered. I'm not saying any, but I'm not saying it is, and I'm not saying it is not. I'm saying that I'm not going to speak to rumors. There are rumors out there. Clearly, the Department of Homeland Security is working through ways on how to move forward once Title 42 is lifted. Still, the news has already prompted blowback from within the president's party, with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus calling the consideration deeply concerning. President Biden ended the family detention policy shortly after he took office as part of a vow to roll back policies he described as inhumane. Family detention was used by the Obama administration and continued under former President Trump. Now, this comes as NBC News has also learned that the Border Patrol is diverting a number of agents away from the U.S.-Mexico border up north to the Canadian border, as some migrants are now flying legally from Mexico to Canada and then crossing south into the U.S. And as I said, these policy dilemmas come as we got a brutal and devastating reminder today of the violent stakes. The Mexican regional governor confirmed today two of the four Americans kidnapped by a cartel are dead. Authorities have yet to identify the victims. Dramatic video showed cartel gunmen abducting the Americans from a white pickup truck just south of Brownsville, Texas. Mexican authorities say the abduction was a tragic case of mistaken identity. A spokesperson for one of the victims said the group had traveled to Mexico from South Carolina seeking a medical procedure. Attorney General Merrick Garland addressed the crisis today. Cartels are responsible for the deaths of Americans. And we are fighting as hard as possible. The DEA and the FBI are doing everything possible to dismantle and disrupt and ultimately prosecute the, the leaders of the cartels and the entire networks uh, that they depend on. Joining me now on set is my colleague at the White House, NBC News White House correspondent Monica Alba and NBC News justice and intelligence correspondent Ken Delanian. Ken, I have to start with you and this news about two Americans who were killed in Mexico. We should say this is an area where the State Department has said you should not travel to. But what more do we know? What do we know about this area? It's just a horrific story, Kristen. This Matamoros is controlled by the Gulf Cartel. 
And it's a place, as you said, where the State Department is instructing Americans not to travel. It's really unclear to me to what extent regular folks actually learn about and pay attention to those State Department warnings. As you said, this was a group of people from South Carolina who were going down there. The woman in the group apparently was was trying to undergo a cosmetic surgery procedure. Those are much cheaper in Mexico. This happens all the time, by the way. Hundreds of thousands of people cross the border to do this kind of thing. And in a case of what uh, my sources are calling mistaken identity, Mm -hmm. these cartel gunmen attacked them thinking they were somebody else. One theory is they thought they might have been Haitian people smugglers encroaching on the cartel's turf, immediately shot and potentially killed, or at least grievously wounded, if we can see from the video, some of these people, put them in that white pickup truck, took them away, and then quickly realized they had made a mistake. Mm. And now now we know that the survivors are back in U.S. custody, and the United States is trying to get the bodies of the deceased. Yeah, and obviously there's going to be an investigation. What do we know about the relationship between the FBI and authorities in Mexico? What is their working relationship? It's a tense one, not just the FBI, but the DEA. It's, you know, the U.S. intelligence community Community and law enforcement agencies have a lot of capabilities they can bring to bear against the cartels, even more than they can use in the United States. Surveillance capabilities, uh, drones, all kinds of stuff. The Mexican government does not always, however, let the U.S. bring those to bear. And so it's, it's, a, it's a back and forth. It's a negotiation. What I've been told is, given what happened here, it's very likely that the gloves will come off and that the FBI will swoop in and they, mm-hmm. may, they have a good chance of bringing these people to justice, but we'll have to see. Monica, we saw White House Press Secretary uh, Karine Jean-Pierre respond to the reports about shifting policy. Before we get to that, though, I want to ask you, what is the White House saying about this moment and how it might impact their relationship with the Mexican government? And there's not much that the White House wanted to say beyond extending condolences, of course, to the families of Americans who just lost their lives and, of course, those who have just been returned and the ordeal that they went through, except to say, of course, this is something that the president was continually briefed on, that it's something that the U.S. government will continue to talk to the Mexican government, specifically when it comes to these drug cartels, on the issue of fentanyl, which is something that the president did raise with his Mexican counterpart, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, when the two met in Mexico City earlier this year. This was a huge topic of conversation in the context of trying to eradicate some of this violence, because that's exactly what the U.S. assessed contributed to this situation. But officials want to learn more before they comment further. But I think you can expect the president to continue to say that a huge part of this problem is the drug smuggling, the human smuggling that is contributing to all of this horrendous violence, Kristen. I'm so glad you raised that because that was such a critical part of those talks. Monica, you were there obviously covering those critical talks. We have been talking about a policy issue that is looming very large over the Biden administration. These discussions um, that come amid this breaking news that we've been tracking today, discussions about the Biden administration reversing course on migrant family detentions. President Biden got into office. He said he was no longer going to do it. Now, apparently, they're thinking about shifting that as they prepare for Title 42 to be lifted in about two months. What are you hearing about that? Exactly. And it was candidate Joe Biden who said, look, if I'm elected, I'm going to rule with compassion when it comes to these families. He argued that families, when they are detained, should always stay together and not for long periods of time. I'm told in talking to my sources that no final decision has been made about reviving this controversial ICE policy, but that it is possible. It is among the range of discussions when it comes to having to prepare the White House 
House and the Department of Homeland Security say for what they expect to be a surge of migrants when Title 42, that Trump-era public health policy, is set to expire because the public health emergency tied to the COVID-19 pandemic is also going to be lifted. So all of this is going to take place in early May, and that is why they need to figure out their plan, because as we saw in a bit of a preview a couple of months ago, when Title 42 was potentially going to lift, they had to surge additional resources to the border just to deal with all of the migrants from many countries who are really fleeing persecution and violence themselves, trying to come to the United States. But the fact of the matter is now this would be a huge issue for the president, given critics, of course, say that this would be completely hypocritical for him when this is something he said he wouldn't do. And again, the White House wanting to say that nothing is finalized here and the conversations are ongoing. And Monica, it comes against the backdrop of 2024. We've been tracking a number of different issues that the president has kind of been bringing to the forefront. Now this is the latest one. This is complicated, though, for an electorate, this issue, because it is such a flashpoint. However, you could argue he's tracking a little bit more to the center, courting some Republican voters potentially in independence. Definitely. And that is exactly why it is so complex. And that's why you even had the president assigning the homework uh, task, essentially, to his vice president of addressing the root causes of migration. Remember all of these conversations in the first year mm-hmm. or two of the administration. And always they would come back to the fact that this is a really intractable issue. There isn't some easy solution here. But that's also why you saw the president a couple of months ago unveil those new immigration policies where they are going to be essentially turning around families from Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, and saying, you're going to be staying in Mexico until we figure out what happens next. And that was a policy that did track a little bit more to the center, testing that middle ground ahead of this likely 2024 reelection. Bid, but even now, the fact that it's a possibility that family detention could come back, I think that really does complicate it for this yeah. White House. And they're trying to argue there isn't another way to necessarily deal with what could be millions coming to the border. And there is just some middle ground they feel they have to strike. Ken, just very quickly, we reported at the top the fact that the administration is diverting some resources to the northern border just kind of underscores how complex this issue is. Yeah, you've got Mexicans flying to the northern border to try to get in that way, thinking that it's easier to get in. It's just a a migration crisis that's really a worldwide crisis, and we're feeling the pain here. Well, thank you both for starting us off. There is a lot to unpack today. We appreciate it. Great conversation. Great reporting, Monica and Ken. Joining me now is New York Democratic Congressman Adriano Espiat. He is deputy chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I want to start off just by talking to you about this horrific news that we learned today, the attorney general connecting the killings of those two Americans and the kidnappings at the border to the cartels. What was your reaction to hearing the news and what does it say about the the U.S. policy as it relates to these cartels? Well, I was horrified, obviously, to to hear that two Americans were killed, two other were may have been injured. Uh, this uh, speaks to the level of violence uh, at that region in Matamoros, uh, one of the borderline states uh, in Mexico. And it just highlights how dangerous it is for women and children to even cross through that territory and expose themselves to that level of violence. You know, Mexicans are not migrating to the United States in in large numbers. They're coming from other countries. They're coming from Nicaragua. They're coming from Venezuela. They're coming from Cuba, from Haiti. 
from other countries. They're fleeing what I feel is a crisis of democracy mm. in the hemisphere that we have not attended for some time. And uh, we must continue on our efforts to really uh, go one by one and determine whether or not these asylum seekers have a legitimate claim to be here in the United States. Let me let me ask you, because as you heard my colleague Monica Alba reporting on, President Biden, when he was meeting with the president of Mexico, secured new commitments as it relates to not just dealing with cartels, but the broader fentanyl crisis, the root causes of migration, if you will. Is Mexico doing enough in your estimation? They should be doing more. Uh, but again, uh, this is a crisis of democracy, of uh, violence, of uh, political violence, gang violence, natural disasters and environmental crisis, droughts that uh, uh, create uh, food security issues that force women and children and families to walk thousands of miles, in some cases, yeah. across the El Darien, the Panamanian jungle. And come to our border. Congressman, so, can you get specific? Just what do you what more do you want to see the Mexican government do to address this crisis? There is no infrastructure in Mexico right now to provide some assistance uh, to families that mm. we're saying you must seek uh, asylum in Mexico before you seek asylum here. There is no infrastructure, no reliable or safe infrastructure to provide to these families. The violence that just occurred in Matamoros highlights that fact. Yeah. And so we're asking uh, families to expose themselves to a very violent situation in Mexico across the border. So we must continue to provide the kind of a one by one uh, effort to rely on our principles uh, that have guided our nations for many, many decades. That we are a nation that uh, provides uh, some level of, of cover and some level of harbor to those that are seeking asylum for legitimate reasons. And we can do that. We, the United States of America, could determine who's in danger because the government may want to assassinate them or gang may want to kill them or may be facing a, a clear and present danger because of a natural disaster. Yeah. We can do that. Congressman, let me ask you about this latest reporting that NBC News has confirmed that the Biden administration is considering reviving the family detention policy for migrants, which, of course, the president had come into office and ended. What say you? What is your reaction to hearing that? Well, we were encouraged to hear from the White House press secretary today that it just may be a rumor. We're hoping that it's just a rumor. We're going to be speaking to Secretary Mallorca later on today. On, on whether or not it is in fact just a rumor. And we don't want uh, our nation taking a U-turn and going back to the, the ways of, of Donald Trump and his administration. So what's um, your message to the president as this clearly is a topic of discussion inside his administration? Well, my message is uh, what has been revealed by uh, reliable research and what was uh, reported today by the New York Times that exposing children to detention uh, harms them dramatically. And, and in some cases, some feel, some experts feel that it harms them permanently. And so that's not the way to go. We should, we should, uh, there's ankle bracelets, uh, you know, it's not my favorite method, but, and there's phone tracking. 80% uh, of the families and folks have returned and complied with the rules of the game with regards to ankle bracelets and phone tracking. So uh, we should continue in a direction that we take 
a case-by-case -case effort and determine whether or not these folks are in danger of losing their lives and they're seeking an asylum in the United States of America. Congressman, I just want to be very clear about something you've said, though. You have not spoken to anyone at the White House about this yet. Your first conversation about this will be later uh, with the DHS secretary. Okay, so That's you have correct. not confirmed it yourself. Do you think the mere fact that reviving family detentions do, has been floated as a possibility. Is that a betrayal to some extent of people who voted for the president? It's concerning to me and many others in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, but we will have a constructive conversation with this administration. We know that the president has been sensitive to the issue of women and children crossing the border and making sure that we uh, provide the best kind of service and safety net that the nation can offer. And we're hopeful uh, and optimistic that, in fact, this is just a rumor and that we won't go back yeah. uh, to family detention. Let me ask you about the vice president. She joined you back in 2018 in opposing appropriations uh, for expanding family detentions for migrants. Do you want to see her forcefully speak out about this? We know that the vice president has been to the region. She has visited those countries. Has she done enough, though? She, she's the point believe, person on the root causes of migration. I believe that she has. And she's come back with a report that basically says that this is a very complicated issue. Uh, and therefore, uh, we want her to also weigh in, if possible, now, because she has the experience. She has been on the ground and spoken to families and officials from those governments and children. She's seen the children. And I've seen the children down at the border in the previous administration, and I certainly don't want to see them again under the same circumstances. Let me ask you about uh, asylum. Um, there's a new uh, AP poll that has a plurality of people saying that they want a decreased number of asylum seekers. What do you make of that? And how does that fit into this broader debate about how to address the border? Perhaps they're, they're not understanding the dynamics in the hemisphere. And the dynamics in Venezuela, for example, in Nicaragua, in Haiti, in Cuba, and some other countries, uh, they're not understanding the dynamic in countries that are facing severe climate crisis. And, and this is real, and it's showing up in our border. And for far too long, we turned ahead, our heads and made believe that it wasn't there. And now it's showing up right in our doorstep. So we must address it. Yeah. We must be a partner with the hemisphere and addressing those critical issues of yeah. democracy and environment and bring some solutions to them. Congressman, very quickly, the Biden administration says they are going to be prepared for when Title 42 is lifted in about two months. Do you believe the Biden administration is prepared for what's to come, the expected surge in migrants once Title 42 is lifted? I believe that they're making uh, they're making the changes and the, the, the efforts that- uh, Are they ready? I believe that they will be ready, but uh, family detention is not uh, by any means uh, a model that I would support. Okay, Congressman Espiat, really appreciate your joining us to discuss this incredibly complicated and urgent issue. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, deception and insurrection, the escalating blowback against Fox News after it airs unseen surveillance footage from January 6th, and why one Republican senator is calling it literal BS. The latest from Capitol Hill next. 
Plus, the fight over abortion rights in Texas, a new lawsuit filed today challenging the state's abortion laws as we await a court ruling from a Texas judge that could affect abortion access nationwide. You're watching Meet the Press now. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Welcome back. Both Democratic and Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill are expressing outrage today after Fox News host Tucker Carlson used Capitol Hill security footage from January 6th provided exclusively to him by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to downplay the attack on the Capitol and to falsely portray the riot as, quote, mostly peaceful chaos and the majority of rioters as, quote, sightseers. Here's how some Republican senators reacted to that today. I think it's bull****. I was here. I was down there, and I saw maybe a few tourists, a few people who got caught up in things, but when you see police barricades breached, when you see police officers assaulted, all of that, or you had to be in close proximity to it, if you were just a tourist, you should have probably lined up at the visitor center and came in on an orderly basis. All I know is that uh, there were, yeah, there were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think... Um, were scared for their lives, so you can, you know, however you want to describe it, but it was, a, it was an attack on the Capitol. My recollection of the day is that it was not just some rowdy, peaceful protest of Boy Scouts, nor was it, you know, the, uh, the takedown of democracy that others, uh, the, that others on the, on the extreme side want to call it. The frustration and anger there palpable. Just yesterday, the Justice Department released these statistics from its investigation into January 6th. More than a 1,000 arrests, 518 guilty pleas, and 53 convictions at contested trials. Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland called January 6th a violent attack on a fundamental tenant of American democracy. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger is also condemning Carlson's show in a letter to the department, which NBC News has obtained. Manger says the show was filled with offensive and misleading conclusions about January 6th and that the show never reached out to the department to provide accurate context. This afternoon, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell backed up Manger's comments. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. 
NBC's Ali Vitali is on Capitol Hill to unpack all of this. So, Ali, let's just start off with what you're hearing from sources there on the Hill. Where is the outrage placed? Is it for Tucker Carlson or is it for Minority Leader McCarthy for giving him the tape exclusively first? The tapes, I should say, the footage. Yeah, I mean, Kristen, it kind of depends what side of the Capitol you're on, because candidly, the conversations that I'm having on the Senate side sound very different from the conversations that I'm having on the House side of this building, because you saw Senate Republicans in the videos that you showed willing to go after Fox for the way that they are gaslighting on what happened on January 6th. Even Mitch McConnell, and I say even because this is a man who had the opportunity during the second impeachment to add his voice to the several Republicans who voted to convict for former President Trump of the role that he played in the January 6th insurrection and ultimately did not do so, but has been quick including in moments like today, to be sure to speak to what January 6th actually was. So on the Senate side of this building, there is more allowance to speak to the reality of what the 6th was. Here on the House side, though, this is really something that many Republican members have been pushing for, they've been asking for. They say that Fox, and specifically Tucker Carlson, who has repeatedly downplayed what happened on January 6th, is the right forum for this footage. So it really depends. But I do think it's important to note that McConnell, even as he says he's aligning himself, with the Capitol Police, who have been very clear in how they feel about what Tucker Carlson has done on his show and will continue to do this week, McConnell did not engage with a specific question about if McCarthy shouldn't have given over this footage. Mm -hmm. That's something where he seemed to draw the line and at one point just said to reporters, anyone else have a question to ask me? Because he clearly wasn't engaging on that one. Yeah, and I misspoke. Obviously, I meant to say House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There has been some reporting, Ali, that the House Speaker, as a part of securing the vote, to get his speakership, uh, this was one of the concessions. Can you give us the reality check? What are you hearing about that? Yeah, that is one of the things that we've heard from our sources, Kristen. It's in the laundry list of things that people on the far right of this party here in Congress have pushed for during the time that McCarthy was trying to become speaker. We all remember the dozen plus rounds of balloting. Tucker Carlson would go on his show and talk about how this is one of the things that he himself was pushing for during that very tumultuous time for McCarthy. And it's partly why, again, when I talk to Republican House members on this side of the building, they're happy with seeing this footage aired out in this way. I do think it's important for us to sort of like take this in two parts, though. There's the democracy piece of it, which is Carlson gaslighting on what happened here on January 6th. And then there's the security piece of it, which is the Capitol Police saying that unlike with the January 6th committee, when they showed this footage, the Capitol Police were not given any heads up, no ability to weigh in on, hey, please don't use this. It might have some security implications. That wasn't the case with Tucker Carlson's show. Mm. All right. Well, Speaker McCarthy says he's going to release the footage to everyone else. So we will stay tuned for when that happens. Ali Vitale, thank you so much for your great reporting. Coming up next, we'll dive into the political consequences of House Speaker McCarthy's decision to hand over those hours of January 6th footage to Fox News. Plus, the Biden administration's struggle at the border. The panel is next. You're watching Meet the Press now. Last week's violent attack on the Capitol was undemocratic, un-American, and criminal. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. 
Welcome back. That was Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy just days after the January 6th attack, condemning it as the work of a violent criminal mob, a mob inspired by former President Trump. McCarthy's remarks then stand in stark contrast to his actions now by turning over tens of thousands of hours of footage from the attack to Fox News' Tucker Carlson. McCarthy has given far-right provocateurs a means to spread the dangerous lie that January 6th was a peaceful gathering. Joining me now to discuss this is Tulu Olorunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, former New York Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley, and Sarah Chamberlain, President and CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership. Thank you for being here. Tulu, I want to start with you. Um, this extraordinary move to give Tucker Carlson thousands of hours of footage and the way in which he characterized it was just not what happened on that day. And he left out all of the footage that showed the violent attacks. What is the danger here, both in terms of misinformation and politically for Republicans? Well, we knew this was going to happen when uh, Speaker McCarthy decided to hand over all of this footage to Tucker Carlson because uh, the Fox host had been talking about January 6th in this false way for quite a long time, downplaying the risk, downplaying the threat uh, to the democracy. And so he got all of this footage and he had the opportunity to uh, cherry pick it and pro provide uh, more evidence for for his uh, evidence-free uh, attacks on uh, Democrats for focusing on January 6th. And so the danger is that this holds and this takes hold in the American populace. And uh, certain Americans believe that January 6th was just a peaceful protest, just people walking through the Capitol. And people believe this because he has a highly rated cable show. And so now you're seeing even the Republicans say that this is too much, that this is not what we should be doing. We should not be focusing on this. And that's where we are in this uh, debate right. right now. Well, sir, you saw so many Republicans in the midterm make the point we want to move on from that day. Right. We don't want to be mired in that. We want to look forward to how we're going to address the challenges that lie ahead. I mean, doesn't this just do the opposite? It sure does. And the Republican Main Street Partnership, we live in, the, in those swing districts and people are done. I mean, they really are done. They believe that it was uh, criminal. We have a, certainly a lot of people have um, pleaded guilty to their crimes. I agree with the senators that it was unfortunate, but people want to address crime. They want to address inflation. They want fentanyl. I mean, there's so many other issues out there that they want to talk about and, and they're done with January 6th. So we need to move on. Joe Crowley, what's your reaction been, and also to what we heard from Senate Minority Leader McConnell, who, as he often does, walked a fine line. He basically said, I, I agree with the Capitol right. Police, that he should have consulted with them first, that this is a misrepresentation of what happened on that day, and yet he did not directly criticize his counterpart in the House. No, but in fact, it is an abuse of power. There's no question about that. And I think, you know, this information was not given to Chris Wallace. It was not given mm. to a fair arbiter. It was given to a partisan, someone who had a, a, a preordained notion uh, as to what his views were on uh, what took place that day. Uh, you know, a tourist day at the Capitol where Capitol Police were actually escorting and giving people tours of the Capitol. That was not what was happening. And I do think from a political standpoint, it's a major blunder because it just reminds the American people again of, you know, the collusion <laughs> that kind of took place here in terms of, you know, the far right media and, and these extremists on, on Capitol and elected officials on Capitol Hill as well. They want that to go away and said it keeps coming back on them. Tulu, you have former President Trump now a declared candidate in 2024 praising 
uh, the way Tucker Carlson handled this, the release of this footage. How does that impact this moment on the campaign where it's starting to ramp up? We're not really in the heat of it, obviously, yet. Yeah, we heard from the former president over the weekend saying, I am your retribution. Mm. He wants to be living in the past. He wants to be relitigating all of these past things that we've already moved on from as a country. And so it shows that this primary is going to be a lot about relitigating things that happened in the past, trying to uh, soothe the president's bruised ego over January 6th, over the fact that he is associated with the, the attack on the Capitol that happened two years ago. And so the fact that Fox News is buying into this, it shows that this is going to continue to be part of our political debate for mm. uh, the foreseeable future. And, and I would agree with just about everything you said, except I don't think the country has moved on. Mm. I think some would like to move on. I think what took place that day is still an open to debate that people are talking about, unfortunately, because it, it really was blatant what took place that day. Uh, but people being held accountable, the president has never been held accountable for what he did. Others have not yet been held accountable. People are going to jail for, for sedition, yeah, sure treason, are. you know, and for police assault. Uh, and yet the people that really organized and put this together have not been held accountable yet. Sarah? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are, I mean, they're going to jail and they're going for long sentences. Mm -hmm. We have to understand what happened January 6th. And as much as President Trump wants to pretend it didn't happen, it did happen. And everybody knew it at that time. You showed the clip and we started with Kevin saying that from the floor. Yeah. I mean, this was a problem. I have a lot of friends that were there. They were scared. Uh, and let's talk about a potential challenger for the former president, Ron DeSantis. He delivered his state of the state address today. No major headlines except Sarah, it was kind of a list of his core conservative mm -hmm. principles. What do you make of what Ron DeSantis is doing? He's kind of staying on the sidelines, taking maybe a few not so veiled jabs at former President Trump, but certainly not entering the fray, not getting into the race. Not yet, but he is rolling. He's doing a slow roll, getting it out there, <laughs> getting roll. people to understand who he is. And he, I firmly believe he'll be in in the next few months. And I said, you know, welcome. It, the country needs him. Tulu, what, what do you make of where the Republican field stands right now? You have Nikki Haley, who's in the race. It seems to me the challenge is carving out a lane that is separate from Trump and yet that resonates with Republican voters. Yeah, we saw this in CPAC with Nikki Haley trying to uh, create a lane for her, yeah. herself. And we saw a number of potential candidates not show up to CPAC because they're also trying to figure out how to position themselves. They have to not only take on Trump directly, because we saw in 2016, if you try to sort of sidestep him or compliment him or share the stage with him, he will destroy anyone who does that. But no one has shown how to take him on directly yet. So they're trying to figure that out and also decide how to keep his voters. And so that's the big challenge for a number of these Republicans. Let's talk about President Biden and the Democrats and this reporting that, Joe, there are discussions inside the administration about reviving the migrant family detention policy, which some immigration advocates have called inhumane. It is a flashpoint, but you could also argue it's an attempt by this president to try to tack a little bit further to the center. What do you make of it? Well, I think certainly there was a crisis on our border, just today's news in terms of the, the killing of, of, of two tourists, at least two tourists down in Mexico today. Elevates, it elevates for the American people just how violent uh, the culture in, in parts of Mexico are today. Not all of Mexico, parts of it. Um, but I think it also uh, is unfortunate because I think, um, uh, you know, this was something that was instituted initially by 
President Trump, former President Trump, something that the president ended uh, pretty soon after he came into, into, into office. And my hope is that it can still be averted, that this doesn't happen. I, what we need is comprehensive immigration reform. We need the humane approach to this yeah. issue. And it's Democrats, Republicans coming together. Uh, it, it's possible. It's, it's very hard to do, but it is possible. And we should be focusing on those yeah. things. And t- go ahead. No, I totally agree with you. This has to be a bipartisan issue. This is a crisis for the United States, and we need to work together to get this solved. This is awful. And the question is, how does it, we've been talking about this for decades, frankly, how does this crisis ever get solved? And Tulu, we should point out that under former President Trump, there was a zero tolerance policy, which also led to the separation of children from their parents, which is not what the Biden administration is talking about. However, it's still incredibly controversial. Could this backfire politically if they do, in fact, decide to revive this? It is already starting to backfire (laughs) a little bit. As you see, a number of progressives say that this is an awful idea to even be talking about this and and focusing on the fact that this could happen. I do think that part of this from the White House could be trying to change the the narrative, trying to change the the argument that has been coming forward from President Biden and the rhetoric around sort of being welcoming and ending all of the Trump policies. And so even if they don't follow through with this policy, they want to show that they are going to be a little bit more tough than they have been and maybe deter people from making that that difficult decision to take their families across the border, even if they don't decide to actually put people in family detention. And Joe, just very quickly, I mean, we have seen him kind of talking about core issues. Crime was another one Mm -hmm. uh, that he's really, I think, we're expect to hear him talking more about this issue that's clearly going to be a major issue in 2024. Absolutely. And I think that's also some of the blowback you're getting from House Democrats in particular, that this this recent action on uh, the D.C. bill uh, in terms of their crime, their their amendments, their own own, own crime laws um, really backfired for House Democrats who already had to take that vote. Uh, and now the president says he's he's going to let, let it go if it comes to his desk. Yeah, the president saying he's going to let it go because he does not want to be seen as looking yeah. soft on this issue yeah. of crime. And that D.C. crime bill would have softened some sure. penalties. Thank you so much. Great conversation to Lou, Joe and Sarah. Really appreciate it. After the break, conflict and confrontation, China's new warning to the U.S. and what it means for the deteriorating relationship between the two superpowers. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. The public back and forth between Washington and Beijing escalated again today after China's foreign minister warned of conflict and confrontation unless the U.S. changes course. Ching Gong, who was until recently China's ambassador to the U.S., used his first press conference as foreign minister to condemn Washington on a wide range of issues, from the spy balloon incident to the administration's claim Beijing is considering providing ammunition and artillery to Russia. On Taiwan, he warned that it's the first red line of U.S.-China relations that must not be crossed. NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman is in Hong Kong with more. Hey, Kristen, those fiery comments from China's foreign minister, Qin Gong, in his first briefing with the press since taking office came just one day. We heard similarly strong comments from President Xi Jinping, who is set this week to begin a historic third term uh, after that is rubber stamped by China's legislature during their National People's Congress. President Xi accusing the U.S. of trying to suppress or to contain China, comments that obviously have strong Cold War connotations 
expectations. And the foreign minister, he doubled down. He said that if the U.S. does not change course, then the U.S. and China are really on a glide path toward conflict. He likened it to putting the first button of a shirt on wrong and everything not really working from there. And in a way, it wasn't unexpected that China uh, would start to push back on the U.S. because in the past many months, as we've been discussing, the Biden administration has really ramped up pressure on China on a number of fronts, from the Chinese spy balloon incident to that intelligence about the origins of COVID to the trade relationship, additional uh, green lighting of arms to be sold uh, to Taiwan. And of course, the allegation from the U.S. that China is considering providing weapons to Russia to be used in Ukraine. Now, the Chinese government firmly disputes uh, that it is even considering that. And if there's any silver lining uh, in the comments we've seen in the last few days from China, uh, it is that the foreign minister didn't go quite as far in uh, cozying up with the Russian government as many has anticipated, because we've heard China talk about an uh, endless relationship uh, with the Russians. But the foreign minister uh, was asked, for example, about whether they should get rid of using the U.S. dollar uh, as as a currency that they use for international transactions. He didn't really take the bait uh, on that question. And he once again made very clear that China has no intention of providing weapons uh, to the Russians for use in Ukraine. The White House today responding to all of these comments, Kristen, disputing that the U.S. seeks any kind of conflict with China, saying it merely is looking for a strategic competition. Kristen? Josh Letterman, thank you for that reporting. Still to come, we'll hear from one of the women suing Texas, alleging the state's abortion bans put her health at risk and where the fight over reproductive health care goes from here next. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Five women alongside two OBGYNs are now suing Texas over the state's abortion laws. The lawsuit filed by the Center for Reproductive Rights argues the women were denied necessary and potentially life-saving care because medical professionals throughout the state fear liability under Texas's abortion bans. The lawsuit seeks to clarify the state's law. NBC's Yamiche Alcindor spoke to one of the plaintiffs who says delayed abortion care threatened her life after she was told her baby would not survive. She said pretty quickly, you know, all in one breath, you're going to lose the baby. She's not going to survive. I thought what they would do is go in and intervene immediately, but she told me that they couldn't because the baby's heart was still beating and I wasn't sick. Laws in Texas ban doctors from performing abortions except when a medical emergency endangers a person's life or major bodily function. Those who violate the law could face up to life in prison. Because of the law, I very nearly died. Nothing about this is pro-life. But John Segal, president of Texas Right to Life, who helped craft the Texas Heartbeat Act, says the law is clear as written and that doctors like Amanda's are misinterpreting it. If they are saying they have to delay and wait the, the days like you're talking about, that is medical malpractice. But if it is uncertain, that this child may survive or may not. Texas is saying we don't jump to conclusions. Doctors are saying the law is not clear, and as a result, I'm going to act on the side of, of being cautious, and that means that I might have to wait for a woman to get sicker and sicker before I can perform an abortion that I know she needs. And that's the wrong conclusion. Nancy Northup is the president of the Center for Reproductive Rights. 
The issue here is not that the doctors are being too cautious. The reality is, without clarification of this Texas law, without a change in the circumstances that are happening today, it is going to come that women are going to die. In response to the lawsuit, the Texas Attorney General's office said he'll, quote, continue to defend and enforce the laws duly enacted by the Texas legislature. The suit comes as we wait for a ruling by a federal judge in another Texas lawsuit over medication abortion that could pull a common abortion pill off the shelves nationwide. Joining me now is Dr. Bhavik Kumar, a Texas-based abortion provider and co-chair of the Committee to Protect Healthcare's Reproductive Freedom Task Force. Also with me, Liz Sepper, professor of law at the University of Texas. Dr. Kumar, I want to start with you, and thanks to both of you for being here. Can you just react for us to what we have just heard from the plaintiff? Uh, Amanda is her name, talking about the fact that she was told her baby would not survive, and yet she couldn't immediately get the care that she says she needed to save her life, and her health was put at risk. Absolutely. It's very difficult to hear that story, and unfortunately, in Texas, it's a very common story that we hear from people. What we see in Texas is that when politicians decide to tell us how to practice medicine, when they have uh, punishments such as the one in the Texas ban where we could potentially go to jail for life. It becomes very difficult for us to have conversations with our patients to give them the options that they deserve. And they are suffering the consequences of that. And that story is something that I've heard from other patients as well. And it's really, really unfortunate and it's really avoidable. And uh, Liz Sepper, can I have you respond as well to hearing what was really difficult, I think, to learn that this woman's life was put at risk. She could not get the care that she says she needs. She said that she almost died. She almost didn't survive this. These stories are the tip of the iceberg, and it's because Texas's abortion law is draconian, um, but it also lacks some clarity. There are uh, provisions that contradict one another. Um, there is an exception for life-saving care that uses terms like serious risk of substantial impairment to a major bodily function without any definitions. These are not medical mm. terms. Physicians just don't know what they mean. When in good faith can they act to save someone's life and health? In this case, Dr. Kumar, obviously Amanda was here to tell her story. That's why she's a plaintiff in this case. But are you learning about cases in which women are not um, as lucky because they're not getting the care that they need? Absolutely. And I commend the plaintiffs in this case for coming forward. It takes a lot of bravery to be able to do so. But there are a lot of people that don't have that ability to do so, uh, whether they're experiencing a complication in a wanted pregnancy, uh, a complication in an ectopic pregnancy or an ability to access care, or if they're having a miscarriage and not just, just not able to get the care that they need. So these, again, stories are very common in Texas and in other states where abortion is banned. And it's really just Another example of politicians interfering and my ability as a physician to provide health care to people. Dr. Kumar, how, what do you believe the national implications are for what is happening in Texas right now? Yeah, what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. Right now, there are 18 states that have some form of an abortion ban in play. And what we know is that when we ban abortion, it doesn't stop the need of it. Um, it also affects other care, such as miscarriage care and complications that can happen in pregnancy. So we're re really seeing this chilling effect and this chaos effect as people are trying to travel to other states. 
They're not getting information from their healthcare providers, as we heard from Amanda, and they're left with confusion. They're left with questions and trying to navigate the healthcare system um, the best that they can. We also know that many people aren't able to access the care that they need. And as we heard, people are suffering and the consequences of that. And Liz Sepper, how do you see the national implications here, particularly to this idea? Do you worry that it's having a chilling effect on women's health and the ability to treat the range of complications that can arise during a pregnancy? Yes. So we're seeing doctors who feel that their speech is chilled. They're not even willing to Mm. say the A word to their patients or give referral or information. Um, This obviously affects all kinds of care. Um, But we're also hearing stories about uh, oncology, about Mm. MRI and the like, where doctors just aren't acting as they usually would because they're concerned that they may be creating risks for fetuses or for potential pregnancies um, that could subject them to liability under SB 8 or Texas's criminal laws. Dr. Kumar, I want to talk to you about the medication abortion case out of Texas. And we know that an anti-abortion group uh, that is bringing the suit has argued that it's unsafe and that the approval process was unlawful. Does the science back that up? Absolutely not. We know that mifepristone, one of the two medications used in a medication abortion, is extremely safe. It's been FDA approved in this country for over 20 years. There have been 5 million people that have used this medication safely. It's a medication that I've provided to thousands of people I often say when I'm providing that medication that you're probably not going to feel anything different today. You can go home. You can do whatever you need to. There are very few side effects, if any, and it is very safe and effective for people to use. We know that this group that's bringing the lawsuit forward was created right after the Dobbs decision, and it seems as if they've cherry-picked which court and which judge they would bring this case forward in. Um, And it's really part of this uh, effort to ban abortion, even with Roe overturned. They're continuing to target anything that people might try to access to um, have an abortion. And we know that there is a second uh, abortion drug, the misoprostol, I believe. Mm -hmm. Please correct me if I'm not pronouncing that accurately. It can be used on its own. But why is the two drug regimen preferred? Why do you think that that's critical? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Misoprostol can be used safely uh, alone, and many people choose that option, especially in other countries. But we also know that when used with mifepristone, it is safer and more effective, um, and people have a better experience, which is exactly what I would want for my patients. And Liz Sepper, what what do you make of this case about trying to ban the medication abortion? And what do you think the broader implications of this may be? Will it have a chilling effect, for example, on distributors like Walgreens? Uh, So this lawsuit is filed in Texas, but it's a national lawsuit, right? It's about the availability of mifepristone across the entire country, California, New York, Rhode Island, and so on. Um, So if the plaintiffs were to prevail here and win what they want, which is to have the FDA suspend or withdraw their 20-year-long approval of mifepristone, then what would happen is that it's likely the drug would become unavailable nationwide. Um, So very serious impacts across the board. Um, Walgreens has recently said that they will provide medication abortion with a prescription from a physician, um, but have then stepped that back out of concern uh, from uh, a letter sent from 20 attorney generals suggesting that Walgreens could face criminal consequences if they were willing to distribute 
the drug consistent with federal law. And Liz, just very quickly, what routes does the federal government have to appeal if, in fact, the judge does approve this injunction? Uh, if if the judge sided with the plaintiffs, the federal government would presumably appeal to the Fifth Circuit and could go on from there to the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, we will watch all of this very closely. Dr. Kumar and Professor Sepper, we really appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. And thank you for being with us this hour. We will be back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. Chuck will be here. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson right now.